0: Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software, repeat successful runs, and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroya.io. All right, how's it growing, friends?
1: Welcome to Office Hours, your source for free cannabis cultivation education. My name is Keisha, and I am co-moderating side-by-side with my good friend, Mandy. What's up? Hey
0: Keisha, hey everyone, we're here for episode 67, also going live over on YouTube, so if you're logging on over there, make sure you send us your questions, and I'll make sure I get those to the team. Um, make sure you're also following us on all of the social medias, so we're on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Social Club. Let's not forget while we're here, though, we got y'all's crop steering questions in this week, so let's get right to it. I'll pass it back to you, Keisha.
1: Thank you, Mandy. All right. If you're live with us here and you have a question, type it in the chat at any time. And if your question gets picked, we'll have you either unmute yourself or one of us will ask for you. Jason is on the road this week. So it's just us and you, Seth. How you doing? Good. How good, about you, good. Katia? Doing good. Good to see you. Good. Um, all right. So you had a walkthrough you wanted to start the show with. Yeah. You want to
2: Yeah, yeah. You know, we've been getting a lot of questions about our irrigation integration. And I thought it'd be a good time to just kind of walk through uh how to set up your open sprinkler with Arroya it's pretty simple um basically in in the beginning of this process you want to go navigate to your setup menu click over to devices and then tab over to controllers here and then basically you're going to click on this device that's going to give you if it's already hooked up all of your zoning options but to add a new controller we'll go in here type in your ip address Your port number password your stock password on most open sprinklers is open door so if it's brand new that's helpful right here just choose which gateway that is on the same local area network so if you have a bigger facility or multiple networks for different areas of the uh, facility make sure you're on the same local network and then give your device a name after it's connected you'll have confirmation here you'll see how many channels you have connected if you have an expansion zone that'll be reflected here and then you'll have access to this menu in which you can set a room for each zone or each uh, port. And then the zone in that room that that port's attached to. Then you've also got the option to set a master zone. Usually that corresponds to a pump control or a master valve control for the room. Uh, In this case here, I don't have that. I just have a relay controlling a pump because I only have one irrigation zone, but you can expand this out. I believe up to 72 zones total and then you can also choose to run in sequence or at once Um, i will warn people though typically open sprinkler does not like to run eight zones all at once you run into a voltage issue so in sequence and if you have a big room you're running them in sequence anyways because you can only irrigate so much at a time now to find your irrigation schedules you'll go to your room dashboard And then on the right-hand side, we've now got the irrigation button once an open sprinkler is tied to this room. If I go in here, I can access my harvest group schedules. I don't have any harvest group schedules going right now, but I do have a room schedule. If I go here and click this schedule, you can see my basic P1 setup. I've got it turning on at 10 a.m. because light's on at 8, three minutes, 4 times, repeat after every 30 minutes. Here it is represented throughout my day. 12-hour cycle and then if I had just made this I'd hit review and save let me go down here and to start that irrigation cycle I'd go ahead and hit resume right here which will activate it in the room or if I want to turn it off I would go ahead and hit pause and then to uh, establish a spot watering basically I'd go to new room schedule here and say new irrigation I want to put on zone one that's my only zone I would hit next. And let's say I typically want to spot water at, if my lights turn at six, these come out at eight, and I w- typically want to spot water at let's say 10.30 if I haven't reached field capacity. So I'd go in and say, all right, at 10.30, I want a singular five minute watering event to happen. Go ahead and save that and then when i want to turn that on i'd go in here hit play or resume that's going to turn on that spot water schedule and then remember that each of these schedules is running daily so if you want to run just a spot spot watering wait till after that spot watering is done and then turn it off for the day that way it doesn't accidentally roll into tomorrow and what's cool about this is you can attach these irrigation irrigation templates to your harvest schedules And when you've done that now you have this in here so you have a baseline and when you need to go in and change duration or add events it's as simple as clicking on the uh, little icon over here popping up this menu and configuring either a different you know more irrigations on your p1 or potentially adding a p2 if at the end of your p1 you wanted an irrigation that was different than your other p1 irrigations so a lot of flexibility um, a little bit easier to use in the open sprinkler ui and very intuitive. And I just wanted to go over that because I've been noticing more and more people getting excited about it.
1: So glad you gave us that overview, Seth. And it's a good reminder for folks out there. We did debut this feature not that long ago, but, you know, some of our clients out there might be kind of missing out. Maybe they're not aware of it. So maybe what's one of the key things that uh, clients who are not using this right now, what are they missing out on?
2: Uh, just easy irrigation all in one platform. You know, most of us are using either Open Sprinkler, Trollmaster, or, A small variety of other irrigation controllers and all of them have a different performing or programming platform to go into. So rather than going like, all right, this is what I need to accomplish on my chart. Let me open my open sprinkler app on my phone, program that separately. Now I can do it all in one dashboard. And the other thing it does too is avoid, especially for some facilities that may not have the most elaborate, you know, digital security system, no longer having to port forward your open sprinkler out to get access to it. Now you can access it directly through your Arroyo gateway and your open sprinkler connection stays in your local area network. So no reason to put yourself at a security, data security risk anyways.
1: Excellent, thank you for that Seth. So clients, if you're not using open sprinkler, there are a new open sprinkler integration, you might wanna get on that, make your lives a little easier. All right, let's get down to the questions. Mandy, what's going on on YouTube?
0: Yeah, thanks everyone over there for sending in your questions. We're going to start with John's. John wants to know, what are the most important steps to dialing in the lighting for a grow when you're working with multiple LEDs of different brands that you've pieced together over time? Each plant has about 100 watts.
2: Gotcha. I mean, I think the first step is to go get yourself a, you know, you don't have to break the bank, but get some sort of PAR sensor. Try to figure out what your, you know, how many micromoles of light we have coming in. And you don't necessarily need to do a DLI calculation in every light, but you need to go under each light and establish, you know, do you have a hotspot, how much variation and at what point, you know, also look at your CO2 in the room, see how much light you can actually push on these plants. But, you know, since you have a bunch of different brands of lights, even if they're all hundred watt, you want to figure out what is the percentage setting on the dial to get each of these lights to match up and, and, or do I need to raise and lower certain lights to get my canopy lighting even? At the end of the day, just some basic sensing technology and then probably a lot of patience in a notepad to write down and make sure you remember which light has which little setting because you're always going to be operating on a little bit of a differential between your fixtures.
0: Awesome. That's great advice. Um, Caesar wrote in, why are so many commercial growers doing only nine untopped plants per light?
2: Uh, Because when grown properly, that gives you a good balance of enough space in the canopy to get good light light and air penetration. You know, we don't want a canopy that doesn't have good airflow. We won't get good transpiration. And then the other side of it is a completely like if we go to a point where there's almost no light getting through the canopy, that means our gradient's pretty bad on our bud quality. You know, our top canopy, this deep, you know, right in from the main canopy is going to be pretty good. The lower we go, the lower grade bud we tend to get. So typically a lot of guys, you know, not a lot, but some people will push it all the way up to like 16 per light and then overgrow it and end up with plants that are a little too bushy. And then it's you know graded graded out at, let's say, 30 to 40 percent a quality, 30 to 40 percent B quality, and then 20 to a little plus percent trim. Now if we can go to nine plants per four by four, we can open up the canopy, especially if you're nailing veg, transplant, everything trucking along nicely. You're going to be able to fill out that canopy, and at nine, you're going to have less defoliation and pruning work. And then usually about the same yield and a greater quality index on your finished product. Um, And it it varies per grower, you know, if you can, you can usually push a little more bulk biomass if you're running a little higher plant numbers. But part of it is having the market to say, hey, I've got the either, you know, array of brand names I can put this other or different product types that I can say, you know, hey, I've got my 20 to 30% A grade bud, but the rest goes into, you know, joints uh edibles distillate you know part of part of your growing and pruning techniques are also optimizing your end output to match your market
0: yeah so a couple of considerations to keep in mind but awesome um i believe that is it for the questions over on youtube so i'll pass it back to keisha for our questions from instagram Awesome. Thank you so much, Mandy. Mikey just posted here.
1: Mikey, if you want to unmute yourself, feel free. Uh, one uh, One fourth uh, to one third pound dry weight per plan at eight to nine per light has been doing really well for us. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. We're going to keep it moving. Um, we got this call in from Urbaca a few weeks ago. We weren't able to get to it until today. What should one do if CO2 continues to stack over a 12 flower six veg hour period lights off cycle lights on I'm running 800 to 1200 ppms while it stacks to over 2500 to 3k at night
2: um I would probably look for a potential malfunction in the controller or find a controller that has a nighttime setting so you can turn off your co2 injection at night because basically once photosynthesis stops the plant's not uptaking any of that co2 really so that's just accumulating all night Um, And your sensor may not, or your controller may not be able to effectively shut it off overnight is what it sounds like.
1: Got to keep those controls under control, huh?
2: Yeah. And I will say too, you know, I've, I've seen this problem happen too in places that have like malfunctioning burners or typically something with the CO2 control system. Sometimes it's just the sensor. It's drifted or it doesn't sense well outside of a certain range. So the system's response is to... Respond incorrectly when I can't accurately read the value.
1: All right, Arbaca, good luck out there. Let us know how you are doing. All right. Okay. Moving on to the next one. Anthony submitted a question. They wrote in after your first four shots and you reach field capacity, if you reach that within the first two to three hours, do you not water again until the next morning?
2: So if we're looking at, you know, the uh, time that the plant's going through stretch, that's exactly what we want to do basically you know water over ideally a two hour or less window and then push that long dry back that's what's going to give us that generative node stacking that we're looking for and then you know once that stretch is done we're going to flip over into bulking where we stretch that window out a little bit and then try to optimize our irrigation strategy to make sure all of our plants are receiving as close to the same care as possible
1: all about that uniformity all right Coming up next here from Super Cotton Mouse, they wrote in, could you ask about converting bulk EC to pour water EC? I think they're just kind of wondering how to do that.
2: So, I mean, basically, bulk EC is what we're looking at in solution. We've either got bulk feed EC or bulk runoff EC. We're looking at a liquid solution. Poor water EC is what we're seeing in the actual pores in the media. So there's not really, I mean... We could probably find a mathematic conversion to do that. Uh, the real way to do it is to actually measure that pore water EC. And if we we're looking at a pore water EC it would be the bulk EC that we're measuring in solution inside the substrate. Um, and at the end of the day, that's what we want to see is an actual comparison between what is our input EC, what is our EC in the pour, in the media pores, what's going on there. You know, are we stacking salt up in there? Are we washing it out? And then looking at our runoff EC, we can start to determine, like, hey. Do we have any channeling going on and then we're looking also at ph there to see do we have any ph drift happening and trying to analyze what's going on inside the plant the reality of some of that runoff though is like if we're looking at bulk poor, bulky c in the runoff we're just looking still at salinity we're not actually evaluating what is running out of there and that's where ph comes in to kind of tell us where we're at as far as plant nutrition goes inside the root zone
1: Everything really is connected, isn't it? All right. Sending it over to
0: you, Mandy. What's happening on YouTube? Yeah, Hector has a question. How much PPM of nitrogen in solution do you suggest um, that I use so that it doesn't disturb flower development? Also, for EC and substrate, does it have the same increase over time in the plant lifecycle like DLI does?
2: When we're looking at nitrogen ppm i mean where to start there i guess are you using calcium nitrate what's your source exactly um and then looking at also what is the ratio of that nitrogen to your phosphorus and potassium you know earlier on when we're looking at a veg cycle we want two nitrogen to one ratio phosph- two n to one pk basically ratio and then when we're going to later bloom you flip that ratio now different ppms are going to be effective at different you know, different ppm ranges basically are how strong are we putting in? Um, Typically you can have kind of a a wide range of that. It's just going to affect the EC level that you're seeing. So as far as PPMs go, we're typically running around, you know, 3.0 EC, which is 1500 PPM on PPM 500 scale, which is most commonly used. So, you know, a lot of times we're looking at running, you know, maybe five to 600 PPM nitrogen. Now, like I said, if you're using calcium nitrate, you've got to look at, okay, we're not just putting in 600 milligrams per liter of calcium nitrate is not 600 PPM of calcium or 600 PPM of nitrogen, excuse me. We've got a calcium calculation we've got to do in there. So I would basically stick to a general outline and up and down your overall ratio rather than switching your nitrogen PPM too much. And if you're really looking at how to do it, I mean, you can go copy a bunch of different feed formulas out there and feed charts that will tell you the same thing.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much for that. Um, Tyler wrote in, should I try to catch runoff and measure during the feed or pour RO through after irrigation runoff? How high should I let runoff EC rise during gin and veg before thinking I need to push more runoff? Any advice?
2: Um, I mean, that's going to be tough. My, My best advice would be to go get yourself a substrate sensor so you can actually see what's going on in the root zone. And part of the reason for that is when we're talking about runoff, Um, we've got to look at like, okay, do you have any channeling going on? Because if we've got channeling, our runoff is going to be a lot more reflective of the feed EC than it is going to be of anything that's actually going on in because that water didn't have time to homogenize with the the, uh, nutrient solution in the block. Therefore, it's not going to pull any of the ions in the block out and tell us any change. And when we're looking for looking at runoff EC, um, typically, we don't want to see it drift higher than four or five, but that's very dependent on what you're actually running in your root zone. And a lot of times those don't directly correspond. You're going to be a lot better taking the better off taking the accurate measurement than trying to deduce how, how much your plant is feeding off of runoff measurements. The big thing we're looking for is uh, stacking above. We like to see a little bit higher runoff in the uh, higher you see in the runoff than the feed. And then we also want to see that pH roughly stable to maybe slightly lowering a little bit. We don't want to see it drift up too far down. Uh, my biggest advice is if you're at this point in the game, go invest in a solace. It's going to keep you from chasing your tail so much. I mean, I spent years trying to analyze that. And when I go back and look at my daily data, it's like, okay, this is spread out among a bunch of plants. Some have channeling, some do not some are getting runoff everyday some are getting runoff every day. Some are getting run off every three to four days. So trying to get an accurate evaluation of that runoff is really, really tough and it's better to rely on better data collection methods rather than just stick with that. And you can get decent results, but basically part of what allows growers today to run higher EC is using substrate sensors because we can directly see what's going on, you know, and, and that's part of it too. Like if you go to take a bulk EC measurement using deionized water or RO water, that's not going to be quite as relatable is using a charge solution to pull a runoff uh, sample. And then on the other side of that, if you were to run, you know, a bulky EC extraction, so deionized or RO water, the way we do that in a lab is to go take a sample of that soil or that media, take it into the lab, do the rinse and then do the measurement. Now, if we do that kind of technique, we're either pulling media out of an already small pot or we're rinsing a bunch of EC that we spent all this time putting into the pot out of it. So it's a, it's kind of a risky move trying to sample uh, runoff too much. And especially with RO water in application. Um, If you, like I said, if you have a lab facility and that's what you're looking at, that's, that's an awesome way to analyze it. I'd love to be able to do that. But then at the end of the day, how many pots do you have to take a sample from every day to do this washout? and where can you sample from the pot? Cause the other side of that is if we're looking at soil sampling, we'd be using cores. That's also really not good for your one to two gallon cocoa pot to just take a one inch core out of somewhere in the pot all the way from the top to the bottom.
0: Awesome. Thanks for that, Seth. Um, And thanks for everyone for sending in your questions. We're going to keep going down the list. Caesar wants to know, how often should I feed nutrients in cocoa? I see many growers who only feed twice per week and the other days only straight water.
2: Um, So, I mean, essentially what you're doing there is typically running a pretty low EC strategy, which is not necessarily the worst thing ever. You're just not, you're not taking advantage of that osmotic pressure in controlling stretch. Now, when we're talking about cocoa, it does have some cation exchange capacity, meaning it can hold on to some nutrients a little bit compared to rock wool, not very much. But another thing you can look at too is saying, okay, if I fed a 3.01 day and I had the ability to really limit my runoff. I'm you know, basically if I'm not pushing any of that salt out of the bottom, there's only one place it can go into the plant, right? So if I've charged that up, I can keep getting it wet and maintain a level of salinity in there. But basically you're loading it up and depleting it over and over and over. And typically what that means is you're staying at a low EC and riding on just, you know, not necessarily the ragged edge of deficiency, but again, we're not pushing it quite as hard as you could be. The other way and where where that comes in though is it you know traditionally we'll go back to the liquid nutrient discussion but it, it ties in if you're buying liquid nutrients you probably aren't buying as much fertilizer which means you probably aren't investing as much into sensing technology which means running a high ec is much riskier for your operation you know high ec has its benefits but it also is a lot tougher to manage pH and can definitely lead you down some confusing roads when you're trying to diagnose plant health and you've got high EC, high or low pH, and then you know other issues associated with a potentially very tall EC range throughout your dryback. And if you don't have eyes on that, it can be very difficult. It might be like, is it a pH problem? Oh, I think so, but I don't know what's going on in the substrate. So I don't know if it's pH or did my EC massively fluctuate today. So, that's really getting that baseline down is pretty important when we're trying to determine things like that.
0: Yeah, it's super important to keep in mind. Awesome. Thanks, Seth, for that. Indie Bud wrote in I got so much knowledge from you guys, and I can't thank you enough. Oh, that's super nice. Um, I'm going in on my first run. Um, I'm in Coco. I have two rooms and one sensor. Will I ruin my grow if I just water two times a day till full saturation? What kind of what kind of advice can we give in that situation, Seth?
2: Uh, would you mind repeating the the media that he's in? Yes, coco, coco. Okay, so it depends on what size pot you're looking at. You know, if we're trying to run generative in a properly proportioned plant to pot size, we can hit that 22 hour dry back. Uh, bringing it to saturation twice a day is, I mean, depending on how many shots you use, is not necessarily. Uh, particularly vegetative, although it definitely is a little bit when we're opening up that irrigation window. However, if you're in a smaller pot, like let's say we're in a one gallon cocoa pot and we're shooting for a four to five foot tall plant compared to a two gallon pot with the same plant size, we're definitely going to be, you know, a little more sensitive to drying back too far, just because we don't have as big of a reservoir for that plant to pull from. And in that case, that would be where you're going, Hey, I know I'm going to over dry if i go for that 22 hour dry back. So at the end of the day, I need to put on a shot to correct how much I might overdry. Well, if the media you're using, like let's say you have a cocoa that's hitting 44 or 45 percent field capacity, and you're hitting a 25 percent dryback, or let's say an 18 percent dryback by the end of the day, all right, you're already getting down fairly low, and you know you're going to overdry by another 10 percent overnight. Your safest bet might be bringing it back up close to field capacity. The danger there is pushing extra runoff for no reason so that's something to think about if you're approaching field capacity later in the day um, are you going to rinse out extra ec and do you need that second full drench to really ride it out till the morning if you're not going to over dry your plants it's probably not necessary to bring it back up that far and you know maybe you could be a little more efficient with water use that way and also like i said possibly monitor your runoff better and maybe allow to get a little more control over how your ec is stacking inside the pot
0: awesome thank you for that i'm going to keep going down our list nosticos wrote in do you think running my room at 1800 ppm co2 is a waste of money and what week would you start to taper co2 in flower thank you for all the info seth
2: Uh, I mean, so CO2 is always going to be directly proportional to how much light's going into the room. Right. And then also our ability to give it enough nutrients to support that level of growth. So if we're looking at 1800 PPM of CO2, are you running 1500 PPFD? And at that point, I mean, that's pretty high. There's not a lot of people pushing it quite that far. Um, but that would be the case. Like that's when you would need that much CO2. And, you know, our basic rule here is about, uh, PPFD plus 250 in PPM. So anytime you're actually thinking about decreasing your CO2 amount or increasing it, it's always directly proportional to your lights. So if you're looking at, hey, I'm actually dimming my lights in the last week of flower, you can pull your CO2 pack quite proportionally, you know? And yeah, basically at the end of the day, if you say have, you know, what's really common about a thousand PPFD at canopy, 1800 would be just pretty much venting money out into your atmosphere for sure. Um, the cost is probably not something that's going to kill you, but it's definitely one of those spots where you could tighten up and find a little cost efficiency inside the system you're running.
0: It's all about controlling those input costs. Awesome. Thank you for that, Seth. Tyler has another question. We use two gallon cocoa, peat and perlite from start to finish with two week veg only need to irrigate during veg three ish times Is it worth it uh, to use four by four cubes for veg and put those into one, uh, one and a quarter gallon cocoa for flour? What do you think, Seth? Uh, Yeah,
2: that's, that's actually not a big, not a bad plan. I find with the four inch pots, you know, even if I was just transplanting those straight into a bigger pot, I'm getting a lot easier veg in terms of uh, effort on my part, because it's much more difficult to overwater that small pot. And it allows me to get a much faster root in when the roots only have to colonize a four by four by four space. Uh, And basically instead of watering two or three times in a two week veg, I can start watering pretty much a day or two right after transplant, especially with a hyperlite concentration in there. And what that does is allow me to have just a little bit more uniform crop when I'm not waiting for them to push roots nearly as long. And then also, you know, one thing we see is that transplant has a, a pretty good hormonal reaction in the plant. We go and go from that four by four and put it into a bigger media, basically root growth has to be driven by oxen production. So when our roots are growing, that's also putting the plant to a hormonal state that once those roots can support it, the upper part of the plant is also going to grow much faster. So that's kind of part of why you see, you know, the all not all the rage, but this bigger movement towards stacked media and if personally if i were going into a one and a quarter gallon cocoa pot i would be looking for like a 0.3 gallon cocoa pot that i can just set on top of there and that's got two benefits one those roots go down out of there faster and more aggressively Uh, and it allows you to pulse those roots by putting your irrigation in that top spot that top pot pulsing it down through those roots are going to follow that water movement and you're also keeping that plant up there healthy and then uh, it's also less labor it's easier Mikey, you can can. make a six by six cocoa cube work through flour and they're a great medium choice. Yeah. And that's absolutely true as well. You know, if you're, if you're at a two gallon, it's a good point, Mikey, And you're going to a one, one and a quarter. You might notice your veg time also is a lot easier, even with the one and a quarter compared to the two gal. So it might be worth giving that a shot before going too crazy with mixing it up.
0: Awesome, great question, and Mikey, awesome uh, feedback. If you make, yeah. if you can make a six by six cocoa cube work through flour, they're a great medium choice. Great, love the knowledge sharing on the show. Um, I'm going to keep going down our list. Let's see who's next. Um, Caesar has a question. With a good nutrient base, are supplements really necessary? I see many growers who put too many bottles into their
2: reservoirs. I mean, yeah. Yes, you nailed it you know, if you've got a proper nutrient base, you won't need to be supplementing things. There are certain things that don't mix well in solution than others. Like, you know, there's a reason Cal is usually a separate liquid. It's because it doesn't make a good salt mixture with other components. Uh, same with most silicate supplements. So, you know, the answer is yes. I mean, you can put in some other supplements if we're growing purely in a hydroponic system though, uh, basically most rock wool. Our goal is actually, you know, not to have the most biological activity in the root zone. We're trying to skip all that and give the plant direct nutrients and uh, going to a high level of additives. There's a certain point where we've gone past our basic plant essential elements, what we call nutrients. And that's where we're diving into some of the world of like, uh, oh, some of your like molasses based products, aminos and other things. And some of those products have a lot more efficacy in, in really actual living soil type applications because what you're doing is feeding a lot of those microbes in there you know if we're putting sugar and carbohydrates into the soil a plant can't uptake carbohydrates through its roots but if you have a bacterial community down there that's going to produce some of the different things that the plant needs or be able to metabolize phosphate and things like that that's what we need to feed most of our commercial situations like that we're not dealing with trying to put too many additives in because it makes it a uh, much more difficult to maintain your irrigation system. And, you know, you know, that we're trying to provide in this solution that is ideally specialized mostly for plants and not a bunch of other things that we don't want to grow in the, in the room. Uh, we're trying to give it everything we need or everything it needs. And the longer cannabis specialized fertilizer companies exist, the better they're getting at really targeting what exactly is needed in there. And that's another cool thing, you know in terms of plant research and fertilizer research over the years, everything's experimental, right? So it takes years of research to prove that like, let's say molybdenum is a plant essential element or nickel. Uh, there's a few other things we can go down that line, but cannabis is allowing us to do it at a little bit more accelerated pace because cannabis growers typically pay a little more for their fertilizer. And we're going, you know, I always say it, we're, we're approaching this from the high input side and trying to make it a little bit cheaper rather than approaching it from what is the cheapest possible way we can get any kind of crop out rather than, you know, there's, there's a level of quality in cannabis that's really pushing the suppliers of fertilizer and, you know, everything in the industry to constantly up their game and try to stay on the cutting edge of science. You know, as, as compared to a lot of the bigger egg world where I mean, we, we've got tried and true products, you know, two, two, four D. If you're talking to anyone that sprays fields, that's been around a long time. It's still in use in a lot of places. Um, cannabis, things progress faster, so it's getting better and better all the time. Trying to get less bottles to put in your tank. That's for sure.
0: Such a great industry to be a part of too. It's always changing. That's a great question. And thank you for that advice, Seth. Tyler has a question what generally causes re-veg foxtails in weeks five to nine of flower?
2: Uh, a couple of things, you know, if you're seeing it just on the the higher, the colas on your plants, the top nugs, a lot of times heat, just go get a thermometer out there. And the, if that nugs 85, 86, 90 degrees at the surface level, that's probably pushing a lot of that foxtail formation, especially with certain genetics that are more susceptible to it than others. Um. We can also look at, you know, repeated bulking stimulation in the plant. So basically, it, some plants genetically will respond to repeated bulking by continuing to veg, especially in combination with running a higher nitrogen concentration later in flower. You know, I've said this before and I'll say it again, there's a good reason that a lot of older feeding schedules would really back off on nitrogen after like week four or five and even, you know, week three, four sometimes. Um, just because in certain plants that calcium nitrate will have an oxen like effect, it'll cause the plant to continue to stretch. So that's part of that foxtailing is when you're pushing vegetative growth with nitrate and repeated bulking signals, that's telling the cells in that plant to stretch out. And also in plants that are genetically predisposed to it, start forming those foxtails. So a good place to start is to see, Hey, am I seeing, you know, I always check temperature first because that to me has been the, uh, one of the biggest reasons I've seen it typically it's like hey why is it just in this corner of the room like okay that's where the dehu is blowing down or we just can't get it cool over there Um, all right that's a good sign if it's on every single bud, all over the plant and a lot of times you can see I wish I had some pictures here to show um, if those foxtails are you know pretty mashed down together and you're not seeing a whole lot of pistols coming out you're just seeing mashed, basically bracts stacking up that usually leans a little bit towards that late nitrogen condition. Whereas the classic loose fox tail with just a little stem and a couple of bracts on each side shooting up, that's a lot more of a, that heat leaning genetic response.
0: Man, fox tailing. It's a crazy topic to talk about, but write that down, girls. Awesome. We're getting the questions over on YouTube. Um, Tom wants to know, and this has um, a couple of A couple of uh, parts to it, so hang in there with me, Seth. Um, Tom wants to know, Hello guys, thanks for all the great info. I'm currently in veg with 18-inch tall plants in Delta 6.5S. I'm looking to transplant into 2.5-gallon cocoa bags. What would you say would be a good initial irrigation strategy for the root-in process? I was thinking about continuing with the current irrigations I'm doing until I see a 15% dry back in the cocoa bag, then switching to sizing the shots for the cocoa rather than the 6.5s. I am just a little worried the cocoa might wick too much moisture from the 6.5s. The cocoa uh, I will be using only has 40% fill capacity. Any advice for him?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, the first thing to start out with, make sure gravity is your friend. Don't actually bury that cube too deep in there. You know, if you have a four by four by 2.5, don't bury that in, set it right on top and then put your emitters right into that uh, rock wool cube, especially for that first week or two. Uh, Because what you can do is basically you're going to push water through that down into your cocoa and yeah, you you, you nailed it. You're going to do the smallest micro irrigations, you know, one per basically though, what I would suggest is 1% of that cocoa volume once a day until you start to see that dryback fall. Once you passed about 6%, you might hit it with two as long as you're seeing that line continue to fall. And then, yeah, 15 to 20% total dryback, and you can start applying P1s to your, you know, your two-gallon cocoa.
0: Awesome. We love that. Keep the questions coming. Um, And then Mikey just gave a comment. Give your roots space to grow down and allow the cube to vent moisture out of the top of the cocoa. Good
2: advice yeah i really want to stress i've talked to quite a few people and that's been their biggest hiccup with stacking media is resisting the urge to bury that in there you know your Rockwell cubes have the uh little aeration stripe or aeration gaps on the bottom the little ridges the flatter your cocoa can be and if you can still get oxygen into there then you're that's the best you're going to do as far as preventing that wicking
0: Awesome. Thanks everyone. Um, I believe that's it for the questions on YouTube. Thanks to you guys for all of those. Um, keep them coming. But until then, I'm going to pass it back to you, Keisha.
1: Awesome. Thank you, Mandy. Yeah. Just a reminder, you know, the way this works, if you want a question, you want to get your question answered by the expert, the best way to do it is to be live on the show. So loving the, all that activity on YouTube. If you have anything you want to ask, we got a little time left on the show. I'm going to go to this YouTube question here. We got a couple weeks ago, but didn't get to, they wrote in, I want to prevent, but, Bud mold due to calcium deficiencies. Was wondering what EC of calcium nitrate to run the last week of flower running cocoa. What do you think, Seth?
2: Uh, I mean, very low. That's where we're looking at calcium, silicate, calmag, anything other than calcium nitrate. Um, But you're right on. It's not just calcium deficiency. It's several deficiencies that are linked to calcium deficiency that's causing you know death in the plant late in flower. Typically, I mean, I'll still run a 2.5 to 3.0 all the way through the end, Uh, the biggest thing. And that's why we see companies, you know, Athena, not so much recently anymore for a while. They've actually had their fade product out to help growers deal with that and getting, you know, the correct calcium EC in there without having to add calcium nitrate. So, I mean, the best answer I have is try to find a way to pull that calcium nitrate severely back or out and supplement calcium with a different product.
1: All right, friend. Yeah. Good luck out there. Thank you for that tip, Seth. Um, I'm going to
0: send it back to Mandy. I think we have a poll on YouTube. We got some results. Oh my gosh. Yes. I'm trying to make sure that I have the most recent um, poll uh, answers in. All right. So
1: the latest breaking news, right? Yes.
0: This is late breaking. Sorry. You guys, people are just passing me news left and right here. Um, So we wanted to know which topic keeps you up at night Pest management, genetics, compliance, or extracts. So what are you guys thinking about when it comes to your grows? Um, And we had 40% came in at pest management. So you guys are thinking about that. Okay, so you guys are dealing with bugs. You guys are trying to get ahead of them. You guys are trying to deal with that. Uh, We're there with you genetics it came in at 30 percent. love that we're always thinking about genetics over here too compliance came in at 30 percent, also okay we're all dealing with that gotta follow the rules um and then extracts zero percent but i think that's just just because we had a lot of big topics on this one so thank you all for voting and we love posing polls so we'll have more for you guys next time back to you keisha for more questions awesome thank you mandy yeah pest management just the topic
1: that the gift that keeps on giving, right? Everybody. <laughs> All right. Moving on to another question that was submitted a little earlier from Dr. J three or three. They wrote in, do you recommend running off every day? I have not been getting enough and it's starting to burn some leaves week 6.5. What do you think, Seth?
2: Uh, yeah. I mean that, that goes right back to the origins of the whole drained away system that we're running here with drip irrigation on a soilless media. Um, of the part of what we're doing is really inputting you know the most complete nutrient solution that we can and once we put that into the media the plant actually once especially once those salts uh, dissociate and dissolve completely in the water you know like when we put calcium nitrate in for instance that's that's dissociating that's turning to calcium and nitrate as two separate ions in solution and the plant has the ability to pull you know calcium nitrate it can pull both but other, uh, other ions you find in there, if they're positively charged, that plant generally isn't pulling them in. So part of what drain to waste is, is we're pushing out enough of those positively charged ions and resetting that pH balance every day, resetting that nutrient balance. So we do want to see ideally run a little bit of runoff every single day And a good way to really kind of monitor that. If you're not getting enough and you, you are seeing some plant uh, health issues is do do water to runoff, collect that and see what your ph is doing you know if in uh, one thing too about this when you do go to do that hydration you know we talk a lot about channeling and stuff but the best uh, runoff reading you're going to get is if you can manage to hydrate that media slowly and make sure you're not getting any channeling or premature runoff after let's you know if you need four four irrigations to recover your dry back but you're getting runoff after your second that's not going to be quite as representative as if you can slow that down a little bit and manage to only get runoff at field capacity, because that's a given most of your irrigation water time to homogenize with that root root area nutrient solution. Sorry, that was hard, <laughs> but uh, you know we, we want to really see what's going on in there. And once you do start seeing signs of that burning, that's typically what it is, is we've got a pH drift because we haven't been resetting that ionic equation every single day so i think i've said it on here before typically i only like to run about three days with no runoff if possible uh sometimes you know it might get pushed to four or five if i'm trying to really get that ec up but i know that since my ph if the plant's healthy should always be drifting down a little bit compared to my input EC, or my input ph that tells me the plant's eating that tells me i really want to be replacing that nutrient solution as much as possible
1: Fantastic, Seth. Thank you for those hot tips. All right. Back
0: to you, Mandy. What's going on on YouTube? Oh, it's popping over there. You'll know it. Rocket Bud Farms wants to know, how should I water um, my pheno hunt with all plants on the same line? Thanks for all the knowledge. You guys are amazing.
2: Uh, Well, I mean, step one, take it for what it is. (laughs) It's a pheno hunt. So try to have somewhat of a rigid timeline where you say, hey, when we're hunting phenos, we just follow this standard procedure and then, you know, realize that you do have all these different genetics on one system. And then when you are doing pheno hunts, there's a few things to consider too. Uh, personally, my favorite way is to sprout seeds, take some cuttings and then grow those cuttings and not typically pheno hunt the actual seed sprouts too hard themselves, just because I'm not going to be growing seeds after this. So, uh, that's not going to be representative. A lot of times we see opposite bud formation compared to alternate bud formation and a few other differences between seed grown plants and clone grown plants. So that's a good spot to start. That's also going to keep, you know, a little bit more management on your media size. Like if I'm starting from seeds, uh, you know, I've got a taproot in play. I typically want a little bit different pot style and size than if I'm going from clone. Uh, The other thing too is, Once you've got that standard recipe, you're probably going to be running these at not the highest EC (laughs) because you kind of got to make everyone happy and try not to kill any of them. So we're going to be probably pushing a fair bit of runoff. And then from there evaluating, okay, what are we actually looking for here? Are we looking just for quality? I mean, you've got to have a a pretty good way to select for these plants in a way that's going to work in your system. So if you've got a pheno hunt, a good place to start is like, hey, we need to figure out how to throw away 90% so that we can blow sum up at least to one valve, and then we can properly evaluate how well it's going to perform for us because I mean, personally in pheno hunts, I found some plants that were seemed awful. And when I went and grew them on my own outside of the facility, I've, I got great results off of those cuts. But those particular, you know, phenos that we were hunting just didn't really, they had a different morphology. There are different sides and everything on the bench. We didn't get a good expression during that first run. And I think that's something you've just got to be aware of and try to sometimes limit your pheno hunt to only so many different phenos at a time as well, make it manageable. So you say, Hey, I really liked, you know, the nose on this one. Um, like the bud structure didn't put out as much as I wanted, like, okay, let's, let's keep that one and give it a second chance and not just look at yield off of that initial pheno hunt. It's a, it's a time consuming process and it's I I will admit it's hard for girls to keep up just because the menu is always changing out there, right? When everyone's trying to do it, it's constant competition and it can be stressful, but it's just part of the game.
0: It's just part of the game. Mikey had a comment here too. run close to the SOP. Those that don't make it won't fit your standard program and aren't worth keeping around unless it's a unique and fun strain. Yeah. I think we agree. Awesome. Great questions over there on YouTube. I think it's, I think that's it for now. So I'll pass it back to you, Keisha.
1: Thanks, Andy. Oh, I love talking about pheno hunts. I'm like Pavlov's dog. I immediately start thinking about what i get to enjoy <laughs> awesome all right we're right. we're rounded out the hour folks so if you have any live questions now's the time to ask we got a comment on episode 64 of youtube uh of office hours on youtube and i wanted to run this one by you seth you were also on that episode but um basically you were talking about the how dryback is the sum of a lot of different factors vpd heat light source and what is that immediate and uh the, in the immediate two millimeters around the leaf surface. So Peter wanted to get a little bit more information. He wanted to understand that a little, more, a little bit more. That immediate two millimeter around the leaf surface. Please enlighten me. You, okay, you-
2: so you know what what's affecting the plant in terms of transpiration when we're talking about that leaf surface, like just that immediate uh, zone right around the leaf. Basically, that's the environment the plant lives in, right? If if this is if this is a leaf surface. And i put my hand over here closer to the grow light that temperature is not reflective of what's being felt right here right so what we want to do is shrink that area down to what's really going on in the leaf surface because that's that's where our stomata exists and that's where everything's responding to so you know if we've got for instance uh, great air movement above the lights and great control up there but then we have poor air movement in the canopy now we don't have a very, you know, homogeneous canopy. We have different rates of transpiration going on. So what we really want to focus on that area around there, the only problem with that is, right, it's, uh, I mean, you could use, not for this purpose, but as an example, I wish I had on a leaf parameter, which kind of looks like a crazy science clothespin that you clip on a leaf, but there's not a good way to just attach a sensor to your leaf and get that leaf surface temp and the conditions around it. So what we do is we use... You know things like relative humidity but mainly vpd and then we do a leaf temperature calculation then factor out the differential you know to what it would be given the condition the temperature right on the leaf compared to what we're seeing anywhere else in the room Um, and where that comes together with dryback is if you um use vpd you start to calculate transpiration rates you're looking at okay this plant takes up so much water over so much time and that really is what determines what our dry back is going to be. So if I have a one gallon pot, for instance, versus a two gallon of the same media, and I have the same size plant and each one is going to dry back so many milliliters of water, it's going to consume that amount. That dry back percentage is going to be proportional to the plant and the media, right? So if each plant consumes 600 milliliters of water in a day, or let's say, you know, more like 12 or 1500, um, that percentage is going to be different compared to the media size. That's why, like when we're talking about dryback percentages, there is a fair baseline we want to see that indicates you have a well-proportioned plant and media size and water concentration. But, you know, again, that's the sum of a lot of factors. So if the leaf temperature is warmer, we see increased transpiration because the VPD is higher in the area immediately surrounding the stomata. If the leaf surface temp gets too high, then the VPD right around the leaf gets too high even though you know that that would be the case let's say where we have a 82 degree ambient temp HID room but we have some hot spots in there under the lights where hey that leaf surface temp is actually like 86 degrees all right those particular leaves are hitting that point where they're actually <clears throat> starting to shut their stomata and slow down transpiration so that's that's why leaf surface temperature is so important because it can vary depend on depending on different environmental factors in the room and just having, you know, a thermometer hanging or a sensor that tells you VPD there isn't necessarily going to guarantee that you have great leaf surface conditions and that you're going to get the desired output compared to what your environmental conditions are.
1: Fantastic. Thank you for that overview, Seth. It's kind of fun to <laughs> address a question from a few episodes ago. I love that.
2: Oh yeah, um, well, I get that one a lot too, Keisha, to be oh, honest. because <clears throat> Yeah. And I think it's because so much of the conversation around crop steering in general just revolves around the dryback. You know, it's, it's become another quantified number where mine is bigger than yours, basically. Right. Like, oh man, you're only pushing 15% drybacks. Well, look at this. I'm pushing 25 and here's some pictures of some frosty bud, you know, there's a hype thing on it, but it, it is, it's all very relative. And I think people really need to remember that when you're comparing your particular data or results with another grower, unless you've been to their facility and I can tell you, I've been to a lot of these, they vary so wildly with so many different little factors going on that it is really, you really can't compare apples to apples based on just a dryback percentage, even in the same media with the same nutrients. I mean, you better have everything the same down, you know, right down to a T to really compare that.
1: Mm-hmm. That's right. Stay away from those comparisons, growers. Um, yeah, love it. Okay, we have a few more live questions on YouTube. Let's get to those. Over to you, Mandy.
0: Awesome, but whose drawback is bigger? I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, had to. All right, let's get to these questions, y'all. Madad86 wants to know, does adding a sweetener to a hydro system really improve flavor and smell?
2: Um, I mean, it depends on what that sweetener product supposed to be, I guess, you know, and when we're talking about like bud sweetening products, we've got, you know, general micro boosters, PK boosters. Um, and in those cases, yeah, if you're already doctoring up a nutrient solution, that's not necessarily deficient, but could use more of that to push the plant. Uh, the thing to look out for is some of the sweetener products, like I said, are a little more marketed towards people growing in soil and you know using probiotics generally so you're feeding microbes with some of those sweeteners if they have carbohydrates some that i've seen marketed are just simply bloom enhancements and what they allow you to do is run a fairly conservative fertilizer solution and then basically add those in to up your pk ratio and micro ratio and push that uh, that growth in the plant a little bit so do i think they can work some of them yes depending on what nutrient line you're running Is it the end-all be-all in that nutrient line? Probably not. That's like a finishing touch on having everything else dialed. So you're actually getting, you know, a healthy plant in at week eight or nine and not one that is already dying from, you know, an an osmotic shock or something else like that.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Seth. Caesar has a question. Do I really need to fade or as long as I follow the Athena feed chart, will I be fine?
2: It highly depends on the strain. That's that's the way to put it. Um, basically, you know, we do a lot of talking on this about on this show about like late nitrate availability and for plants. Some plants will respond to that late nitrate availability late nitrate availability in the root zone by taking it up and expressing more vegetative growth, i.e., new bracts, white pistols, etc. Others are less sensitive to uptaking that. So, and, and also, you know, there's another factor that comes in here. That's levels of determinism in the plants. So when we look at plants that flower a much shorter period of time, typically one thing we see is that, you know, those are a lot more close and closer to a true determinant plant growth, like an autoflower. where man, these plants, once we flip them to twelve, 12 they're marching and they're going to stop when they want to stop. Um, other plants, you know, we go back to like some of the more, uh, OGs, oh, hazes, traditionally sh- stretchy stuff. When you stimulate that plant to keep growing, it will. Just because in the environment that those genetics involved, evolved in, they may not have a season that absolutely kills the plant out at a certain time. So their natural selection or human selection hasn't lended to the plant being that determinant. So basically, yeah, like I said, some strains, you're going to be fine. Totally fine running that late nitrate all the way through. Other ones, you're going to see late white pistols, uh, sometimes buds stretching apart, looser bud formation, and a general resistance in the plant to wanting to mature the way that we expect it to.
0: Awesome. Thank you for that, Seth. I think we have time to get to one or two more questions. Chad has a question. Running Rockwell Media do you keep a strict line on how far to dry back, i.e., do you not go below 30? If my volumetric water content is only getting to 45%, how do I get a big dry back if I don't go below 30%?
2: Well, I mean, this this really goes back to one of the things that scares a lot of growers off of rock wool initially. And my hard line is 40%, especially if I have sensors, because I know that I don't have a sensor for every plant or every slab. And if I, I know for a fact, if I go down below 35, I'm going to start developing some hydrophobic pockets that will not allow the media to reach the field capacity it previously had. So 40% is the hard line. And then really, yeah, the, the reason a lot of growers, we got, get scared off of rock wool initially is if you do too far of a dry back, you know, just after rooting in, just after transplanting or at any point during generative, when those plants are growing and taking up more and more water. Now you have that dwindling field capacity and you're basically shrinking your pot. You're shrinking its ability to hold water and make it available for the plant. So you're effectively limiting how big your plant can get in that pot. And when you do that, you're going to suffer. You're going to see reduced yields at the end.
0: There we go. Awesome. Thank you for that, Seth. I believe that's all of the questions for YouTube for now. So uh, I'll pass it back to you, Keisha. Awesome, Andy. Thank you so
1: much. All right. We got a good one here from Chuck. He wrote in, what would be the highest VPD or preferred VPD from mid-flower to ripening if you know you will not have mold issues?
2: The mm-hmm. highest? Um, so if I, I mean, that's a, that's a really confident statement, <laughs> but if you're, if yeah, are not
1: like, can you know for a fact that you're not going to have any mold issues?
2: Well, I mean, and there's there are some people who are fortunate enough to live in a climate location and facility to where they're able to isolate that from their environment. Um, not not everywhere has an apple tree by the front door or the air intake. So it's that is possible. Uh, typically, though, just for general transpiration and plant health, we want to see usually between a 1.2 to a 1.4 or 5 for max transpiration. Um, As you, you know, approach bigger and bigger buds, typically you want to keep it a little drier in the room just because, you know, if you get the inside of a bud wet, you don't have a little tiny fan you can go put by each bud to dry it out, right? So typically, yeah, still that 1.2 to 1.4 range. And especially, you know, when we're talking about late flower, one challenge a lot of growers find is maintaining that same VPD overnight. Um, you know, my, my general rule of thumb, and this just comes from years of growing in greenhouses is that, that if my VPD drops below a 1.0 in the last two weeks of flower for almost any amount of time, I'm going to be looking for mold. I can very much expect to see it. So that's where, you know, we kind of talked to people in the past about like, Hey, if you can't maintain 43% RH at 65 degrees, if you do that and you still can only hit like 60% humidity, that is a a pretty hard line where you're quite potentially going to run into mold problems, especially if you have any condensation in the room or anything like that. So even if it's not in your environment, you can also run into other problems. And this is one thing I have seen where you do have like, let's say one condensation drip in the room from an AC unit or a pipe or something on the ceiling that drip can hit one bug. And another thing we've seen is a, A lot of cocoa comes in with some aspergillus into it in it eventually right if you have that available in the room you get a bud too sopping wet there's a good chance you're going to get aspergillus to pop instead of botrytis which is you know not only going to destroy that bud but to potentially fail the rest of the room so there's always something to consider generally speaking we want to keep those buds dry in the end and there really is no you know, getting too hot and dry is probably going to sacrifice turp quality, but as long as we can keep those temps a little lower in the daytime, you know, 75 or so, and maybe a little less, then we're going to run okay for that turp quality running like, again, super high, not a huge benefit unless we're avoiding mold super low. Even if you could run a 0.9 for the last two weeks with no mold, there would also be no growth or maturing benefit to that.
1: Fantastic. Thank you so much for that, Seth. All right, we're going to close out the hour with a very controversial poll results. Oh, my gosh. Mandy, what's going on?
0: The news. We got the news in. Um, Hot off the press, you guys. The most important question we asked you guys, help us with our next meme theme. Did you guys want Chris Farley, Patrick Swayze, Anchorman, or Matthew McConaughey? Oh, my Matthew McConaughey. Um, Well, it was a tie between Chris Farley and Patrick Swayze. So, um, yeah, thank you for everyone for chiming in for that one. Um, We're going to leave it a mystery, which one we're going to pick though. So you'll have to tune in, follow us on all the platforms. Awesome. Great show
1: everyone. So good. Mandy is the meme queen. So any inspiration is always appreciated. But the best part is that we we don't know what we're going to see until we see it. The magic. We all see the magic all at the same time together. All right. The last couple minutes before we go, I'm going to turn it to me, Seth. I have two little cannabis seedlings in grow bags in my backyard. They've been out there now for about two weeks. I am watering them every day, but they are, I'm noticing a little bit of yellowing and I'm worried that like maybe this is now the panic starts immediately. Am I watering them too much? Am I not watering them enough? I don't have a solace. I don't have a worry. I need to get it together. Uh, But what do you, what do you
2: think? Well, I'll send you some of those things, but I think you need fertilizer. That's probably most, okay. most of your potting soils don't come charged with very much of anything in them. They might come with a little bit of nitrogen starter and cool. that's about it. So even, even if you bought like Fox farm or one of the traditional, you know, soil companies you might buy from, you still typically in a pot want to start supplementing.
1: Okay. Okay got to get my nutrients in there. All right. I'm on it. <laughs> <Working> on <those laughs> <meats. All right. laughs> yes. Please send me a care package. Thank you so much.
0: Okay. Awesome. I think that's everything, right? Mandy, anything else on YouTube? I believe that's all we have over on YouTube. Thanks everyone for your questions and thanks for joining us today.
1: Yes, Uh, thank you so much for once again holding it down solo in studio. Your expertise is amazing. Mandy, thank you for co-moderating with me and our producer, Chris. Thank you for making the magic happen, including those incredible polls over on YouTube. Uh, Thank you to everybody for joining us for this week's Arroyo Office Hours. We do this every Thursday and the best way to get answers from the experts is to join us live. If you want to learn more about Arroyo, book a demo on Arroya.io, one of our experts will tell you all about how it can be used to improve your cultivation production process. Got a topic you'd like us to cover on Office Hours? Post questions anytime in the Arroya app. Drop your questions in the chat on our YouTube or send us an email at support.aroya at metergroup.com. You can also DM us. We are on all of the socials and we want to hear from you. After the show, we'll send everybody in attendance a link to today's video. It'll also be on the Arroya YouTube channel. Like, subscribe, and share while you are there, please. And we look forward to seeing you at the next session. Thanks, everybody. Bye.
0: Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software.
2: Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at Arroya.io.